Hi, everyone. We are back. Episode 72. We're about to continue our deep dive into driving to Damascus with the long-awaited discussion of the song, See You. And for that, I turn the microphone over to Svein. Take it away, Svein. I'll try. Says to Billy, we've been working for a long time on the story, trying to find a happy ending. All right, see you. That's uh, that's going to be an interesting one. Uh, let's start with the easy fact that uh, it was a single. See, it was a joint single from Driving to Damascus along with Perfect World. It was the second single. At, uh, it was released as a double A side on 11th of October 1999. And it reached number 77 in the UK charts. So didn't set the charts alight exactly. Um, you might argue that 77 wasn't too bad either. That's what, that's in some what I was thinking. Yeah, it was pretty good. <laughs> yeah, it could have been worse. Gone. That, that shows how, how far we've come since, since Fields of Fire. Uh, but there, there are several things to discuss about this single. And to be honest, I hardly know where to begin. But... Uh, Let's start with the double billing of uh, the double A side billing, really. See you and Perfect World. In theory, they have equal billing. CD one listed them as See you slash Perfect World. CD two as Perfect World slash See you. Clearly mixing it up so that the uh, one wouldn't seem more important than the other. But there was also a seven inch vinyl single for this one in plain white sleeve. No writing on the sleeve. It was just one of those with. Um, a hole in the middle of the cardboard where you could see the label of the single inside. And on one of those labels, you could see that CU was on side A and Perfect World on side AA. Okay, here you're fooling here. You might as well have said side B. There's a difference here. Uh, and there was also a CD promo single with a plain white cover just listing the tracks on the disc. So what you saw there was track one, CU, track two, Perfect World, track three, This Blood's For You, basically duplicating the first of the CD singles. So if you have to ask me, based on these releases, CU has the edge in most featured song based on this. Um, however, and this is quite interesting to me, Perfect World was the song that got a music video. And it's a really good video, too. It's very cool. And it made it into my top 10 video list, if you haven't listened to that uh, episode. We did a top 10 video countdown. So so that video worked well. And I'm not sure how well C would have worked as a video. And I'm not sure what kind of concept they would have tried to come up with for it. But I'm, I'm really glad they didn't try to recreate any of the quote-unquote storyline from CU in a video. And I'll talk more about that storyline and why it makes me shudder shortly. Yeah, who would have played Laurie and Billy? That would have been interesting. <laughs> oh, you can you can cast anyone you like. It doesn't <laughs> matter. It does not matter. But uh, it's also interesting to me that they chose two tracks and uh, two of the most different tracks on the album to be a joint A-side for this single. You have the fiercest barnstormer. And you have the quiet ballad with the string section and harmonies. And it's, it really just feels like they weren't sure what direction the next single should go in. So they said, here you go. If you like your big country music, hard and rocking, focus on that one. If you like melodic sweetness, you have the other one. 
and uh, I obviously that's it feels more like a radio ploy or a radio single from that perspective. Like the radio station can choose their song based on their programming. But uh, I mean, to me, I never liked the concept of a joint A side for a single. And I know a lot of artists did it. It was the norm for a short time. This was the country's only double A side, so it's not a huge problem for this band. But I have seen it here and there. And what always happens, and it happens here as well, is I feel it almost devalues both tracks as singles. Uh, you can look at some of the classic big country tracks like Fields of Fire, even Look Away, King of Emotion, Ships, all these songs. No matter what you might think of the songs, they are well-defined as singles. They had releases plastering the names in bold. They had videos. They were performed live and on TV. And they define really the period they all come from in some way. So See You and Perfect World now end up as a weird half-and-half status, as slightly elevated songs, but they become less defined as singles because they it feels like they couldn't stand alone. So it feels more like a radio promo, and in all honesty, I, like I said, I think that's what it was. You know, pick the song that fits your radio programming. You have a soft pop choice, and you have a hard rock choice. You know, knock yourself out. Well, let me ask, let me ask you this real quick, um, without jumping too far into Perfect World, but if, if they were double A-sides and this charted at 77, then does that mean Perfect World also is considered charting at 77? Yes, it does. Okay. Yeah, it's a double billing, so on paper, there's always the, the slash you know, both both songs, both titles mentioned. You can't just mention one. So, yeah, it's it's a little odd, really. But uh, I think um, maybe it was another chart ruling thing. I, I wouldn't keep it out. And that, that's just speculation. I really don't know. But there could be a rule about how, uh, you know, if you had a double something, then you could put out so and so many copies. But I don't know. <laughs> it's just I've seen so many weird rules with singles lately that... Uh, you know, trying to make sense of it just drives you crazy, drives you nuts. And it's not my job to keep track of that anyway. Uh, but let's um, let's talk about the quality perspective. You know, CU versus Perfect World. I mean, personally, I never in a million years would have picked CU as any kind of single. And never mind that I wouldn't have picked it as an album track or B-side or even outtake either. But suffice to say, I think Perfect World is by far a superior pick for a single. Uh, much better song, more catchy, more punchy, more immediate. And primarily, it does a far better job of representing Big Country. Do Big Country have a lot of soppy string quarter ballads like See You? No, they don't. Do they have a lot of great rock band moments similar to what you hear on Perfect World? Yeah, sure they do. <laughs> Lots of them. So I, I never understood why anyone would choose a track as a single that really doesn't represent what the band is about. And more importantly, uh, even if I had liked See You, I still wouldn't have picked it as the second single because you're basically following up a soft, atmospheric, mid-tempo song like Fragile Thing with an even softer and soppier song like See You. So you're starting to push a very one-sided impression of the band's music. And you just don't. You don't, but that's what they did. And perhaps this is why Perfect World was tagging along to try and bring something else and, you know, say, oh, sure, we're about this too. But I think it would have been better to, better to just use that or something else. So the double A side thing doesn't sit well with me. Uh, the choice as single is strange, you know, and quality aside. There's also the, as the second single, two soft songs in a row. Uh, it's a little strange, 
really. And if you look at what the band played, I, I know they played See You Live, but Perfect World was much more often featured and clearly seemed to be a song the band enjoyed playing more. So, so there you go. Like we do for all these songs, let's look at the demo progress. Uh, See You was first demoed by the full band at House in the Woods Studios in August 98. It was the fourth Term to Damascus demo session that we have songs from. And the demo can be heard on Rarity 7 as track 1 on CD2. Um, they demoed six songs during this session, of which five ended up on the album. Those being Bella, Perfect World, Fragile Thing, Your Spirit to Me, and See You. So Bella and Perfect World representing the more rock moments, but Fragile Thing, Your Spirit to Me, and See You representing the softer moments. So they had both there, a good sort of split between songs that ended up on the actual album. So this was a creative session with, with a lot of songs ending up where they wanted them. Uh, looking at the actual demo, the first thing that hits you is the arrangement. This version of the song does not yet have any strings or keyboards or the general polish that the album version would get. This is a straight band version. It's played by the four guys on their respective instruments. Uh, which, as you you will hear when I start discussing the song, it's a huge plus. The band version is uh, highly preferable. Uh, on the other side, the demo is a bit slower than the album version. Very slow, in fact. And uh, the primary change that I applaud on the album's version is speeding up the song a bit. <laughs> Choruses are very nice. Uh, the band arrangement feels very more natural. Uh, and one thing I kind of like, but I like it with the caveat that they would perhaps work more on it ahead of a finished version, is the picking guitar line that plays over the chorus. It feels very nice, but also a little bit all over the place on the demo, and perhaps a little too strongly featured. But I think, you know, that perhaps could have been kept and uh, streamlined a bit, and that would have been awesome. As we know, that was replaced by strings and, and keyboards. And then you have on the demo as well, the, the final chorus where the band take it down. That's a very nice moment. They bring the song almost to a standstill and then they kick into it again for the final part. is really awesome and i would have loved the final version to retain some of that to reach that point where everything just holds and then go into it again for the final bit so that's um that's actually quite uh, quite cool i wonder why that that was left behind probably because it didn't feel, fit the slickness of the final version so um in demo version the song is still a very soft, very melodic ballad, but it's much more a band version. So it's played by four guys on their instruments, as all big country songs should be. So that's really the demo. Let's talk about the actual freaking album track. Um, 
And first off, and I've kind of gone into this sounding like I'm going to crush this song and be all negative, but I'm actually going to be a bit positive first because there are some interesting things going on in this song. And first of all, you really can't overlook the similarity of that guitar line, the staccato guitar of the opening bars, and how much that reminds you of the staccato guitar in between the first and second verses of Chance. just like Chance. See, you can at first seem like a sweet, heartfelt song. But this is where the production and the arrangement quickly lets the song down. And um, if you miss those guitar lines, you're actually excused because what happens when you press play on See You and the song immediately starts? The keyboards are there, or keyboards, I mean strings, but I don't know if they're played on the keyboards. You know, I thought they were at one point, but that, they really are strings. He, he, uh, they, they really got a string quartet in there to play them. But they, they sound so schmaltzy that I thought they were keyboards as well. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll take your word for it. And I don't doubt it, really, but I, I've been wondering the same question. But they, they hit you right from the get-go. You, you launch into the song, and there they are. And yes, that chance like staccato guitar is there too, but they drown. And the, the thing that really gets me really quickly is the song starts and you have all these strings, but then after after a couple of bars, you kind of get blindsided by these, you know, they have, if you think of this army of strings, they have like this these wings that blindside you come in from the side and just swooshes over with even more strings on top of the original strings. And all this is in the intro. So the intro is so string-laden and just swarming with strings. If you think of a battle, this is the battle that the strings will win because the guitars are totally drowned out in that part of the song. It's laden. <laughs> it's quite laden, definitely. <laughs> so um, that's um, it adds to a feeling of something that strikes me as bland. And that's not a word I use often, certainly not for big country. But um, <laughs> it strikes me as dental office. <laughs> dental office. Yeah, they play that kind of music in American dental offices when you go in to get your teeth drilled. Oh, really? Because that relaxes you and then you feel Supposedly. Good. Supposedly. Oh, but God. Usually has the opposite effect. How horrible. <laughs> right? It just makes God. the experience worse. Is that why no American ever fixes their teeth? <laughs> We're pretty good with our teeth, actually. You're thinking of the British. <laughs> I will dodge that one and let that stand on its own and, uh, and continue. Well, um, in, in any case, this song uh, is just so removed from the big country sound and go into a more generic and um, just to honor your recent statement, toothless and uh, middle of the road sound. And this time, the main culprit is obviously that string arrangement. It's, it's at best out of place. Uh, don't really care for it. Uh, I don't know if it's the, the strings or or if they don't fit the song or if it's the song itself that also is a problem and don't fit big country. But it really reminds me most of all of Peter Wolf and how he would add sounds to the music that didn't fit the band. And given the total lack of any strings or even keyboards in the demo, 
and then you have a well-produced version that suddenly sounds like a different song and with alien elements and big country music, then you can you can make your own theories about how they appeared. So um, that's that's the strings. But more than that, I just feel the arrangement of the song is very safe and the musicianship is also very restrained here. It feels like the band is continually holding back. It fits the song, obviously, but it's uh, it's not really <laughs> the, what the, what I think their strengths are. And this is also the point on the album where Stewart's huge change in vocal style and especially intonation starts to make itself noteworthy. And uh, especially the Americanized uh, intonation and way of singing. And uh, I, I can see why, because the first two songs are rockers and not necessarily fast rockers, perhaps a bit mid-tempo really. But th- there is some drive behind them. And for those songs, this is definitely less of an issue. But when you get to see you, which is slow and with strings and it focuses more on the vocal, that is when Stewart's new and presumably very American vocal style comes out in force. And a lot of people I know has a huge issue with this. And uh, Do I mind it? Nah, not really. Uh, certainly not as much as some people. But I've seen some comments that they are extremely negative to this development, and I'm definitely not that. I'm coming more from a place of where the style sometimes becomes so pronounced and clearly different from before that my attention goes to how things are sung rather than what is sung, if that makes sense. And it still does that after nearly 20 years of living with the album. So that is interesting, primarily because when I try to sing along to the album, which I will do sometimes, uh, I tend to sing things the same way the singer does. But I can't always do that with every big country song of the 90s. And it started really with with Skinner's. It didn't start with with Damascus at all. But, uh, you know, I can't sing... I can't sing like that. <laughs> I Nobody it. can. <laughs> Nobody can. It's really peculiar, and it, it went on from there. And, um, you know, I get it. He developed, he changed, he evolved, call it what you like. And it's, I don't really have a problem with it, but the, the best way to put it is I, I will smile at some of them. I think that's the best way to put it. And... um yeah, there is one more positive element I need to, to mention. I like the moments where Eddie Reader comes in and sings in the chorus. Uh, but it highlights another problem with the chorus, and that is a bad transition between the first and second part of it. But I think uh, it starts quite beautifully with all the dreams I thought we shared. But after they also sing, we're mine alone. Then, uh, then you have a change from the first to the second part of the chorus and after we're mine alone it kind of just hangs in the air and then they simply abandon that part or that's how it feels to me and they transition into the if only you could see in you This worked better in demo, simply because the song never hung in the air. The instrumentation of the band actually kept it up and even steered the melody towards the next part, much clearer and better than the strings do. Sleep, sleep, sleep. 
So that is something that always kind of when they got to that, then, oh, okay, <laughs> they just went from one part to the other. There's no transition. All right, good enough. And um, that's most of the music. Um, yeah, the end of the song, Stuart is singing bye bye, and that just sounds forced and stiff to me. That line or the way he sings it. us talking about that line a lot and um yeah didn't we back in the day yeah we did and you know what they might have listened because i was listening to the john wayne's dream version and i've forgotten that they that line is not there in the john wayne's dream version I think they probably heard the complaints about that. And when they remixed that song, they're like, you know what? Take out that bye-bye. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. Good. Um, no, I, I can I can get why it's there because, uh, and I will talk about this as I get more into the lyrics. I think the phrase see you is um, not necessarily clear that someone is saying goodbye and farewell forever it's not like a bye-bye it's more like see you later or it, it's more it can mean anything it's like all right see you that's not someone walking out of your life necessarily so um that's that's a title problem i think but that takes us back to where the title showed up to begin with and um but before i get into that just as far as the, the song in general and you we talked about how we felt back in the day one thing that fascinates me about this song is really how public opinion seemed to have changed quite a bit on this song. Uh, when it first was released, this was without question the song that got the most flack. And I remember it so well. People were really not liking See You back then. But these days, when I, I see discussion on various Facebook groups and I see people talking and commenting, and it seems to be more liked or at least less disliked. Yeah, I've noticed that too. Yeah, so there, there's something that's happened, and uh, uh, I went over to especially the Facebook group Through a Big Country. If you're not a member there, go there after you have subscribed to the the podcast page. Um, they did a chronological discussion of all the Big Country singles, and it was very interesting to read people's opinions on See You and see how they felt now versus the opinions that everybody had back in 1999. And I actually took note of some things um, some comments about the lyrics. No, I'm not, not going to say who said this because you know <laughs> I'm not picking on these comments. They're, everybody's opinion is just as valid, but it's interesting in terms of something I will say later. And one said, "Outstanding lyrical value," which uh, is extremely positive. You would not see that back in 1999. And someone said, uh, "Someone else was hurt at the way Stuart was saying goodbye to us in the song." And other people described it as a very emotional description of Stuart's breakup. And especially these last two comments I'm mentioning now. Uh, I'm wondering if the story about how the song was written might have been forgotten. Because back in 1999, that was all we could talk about. And with that knowledge, we could never feel that way about this song. Because we knew where it came from. So in honesty, it it's making me wonder if perhaps we took a little too much exception to the song based on that knowledge. But really, I don't think so, because the song has more issues than just that. 
And in fact, the song fails on several levels, I think both musically and lyrically. But as soppy as the music is, I mostly let down by these lyrics. And I, I always felt there was a shallowness to them. And never mind the whole see you motive that keeps repeating itself over and over. And I don't think it really works. Uh, and this didn't make sense to me, how I felt about these lyrics, until we found out that the words to this song was not stemming from Stuart himself. Um, they, they came from some other location, and I still recall the ripples of disbelief amongst people when that story was shared. And uh, as it happens, we have an interview snippet with Stuart from BBC Radio 2 on the 7th of August 1999, which is still two days before the false fiasco. And uh, we'll play that and let him tell the story about this song one more time. Songs called See You, I actually uh, stole, stole, I was in a bookstore in, in America and looking for a birthday card for my father mm. and I saw this range of cards for people who want to split up with someone who, but can't tell them to their face, they're called See Ya cards. Right. So I lined up four or five of them and, and, and looked at them and I thought, this is a song, so that's, <laughs> that's where the lyrics, the lyrics came from. Yeah, there we have it. And I think my first reaction was shock that there was such a thing in the world as these CU cards that people would actually send to each other. <laughs> CU cards. That, that, that's even worse than a Dear John letter. It's worse than a breakup SMS because those cards, uh, no, in those cases, at least what few words you might get from the other person is actually written by them. <laughs> but these, these, these so-called CU cards come with the breakup message ready to serve. It's nuts. So, so uh, I didn't. I've never, know I've that never seen one, thing. by the way. I've never seen one of those. I don't know. Do you think it's local to Nashville? It could be. It sounded to me like it was some sort of novelty type thing, meant to be, meant to be funny, perhaps. Uh, I don't know if it, it was ever meant to be seriously used, but I've never seen one ever. No, I, I would hope not. I've asked my wife the same thing. She don't know either. So that's my selection of Americans, you and my wife, and nobody has ever seen one. <laughs> but uh, clearly they do exist, and uh, even it's unlimited form. And um, I, can, uh, I can kind of get why Stuart was fascinated, because it was probably new to him as well. So, uh, so yeah, I was shocked that these things even exist. But my second reaction, when I had recoiled from the knowledge of these CU cards, uh, was probably a kind of relief to find that Stuart didn't actually write the words in the song himself. Or shall we say, he served more as an editor, making sure these pre-written lines on these cards with goodbye messages or CU messages, that they fit together. And that explains a lot of the weaknesses of the song. A lot of people pointed out that the Billy and Laurie part don't really fit. And this is why they appear in the song. Stuart needed some characters to pin these words on. And Billy and Laurie conveniently appear. Um, I'm kind of glad he went the Billy and Laurie route rather than trying to write it from a personal perspective of himself breaking up from someone because that's always the view he's taken. I think um, third-person view it's interesting, but Stuart never really wrote much around characters from that perspective. He would, he would often take the perspective of the singer, whether that is himself or he takes the role of a character or assumes the role of someone. It's still sung in the first person. And he does switch to this view in, in the chorus of the song. In, in the chorus of the CU, he, he sings from the first person perspective, but he goes back to the third person again in the verses. So let's look at these verses. We know they come from CU cards, which means someone at a card company, like an ad writer or slogan writer or some type of 
writer turns in some some verses that are used for these on probably some hourly pay. I can just imagine one card saying basically more or less in the first verse, we've been working for a long time on our story. We tried so hard to find a happy ending. We looked so long and hard for it. Maybe there just isn't one. See you. Which uh, is the version without Laurie and Billy. And that's an easy one to change. I can just see that text on the card. It fits the <laughs> card format and everything. That's possible. So, um, the, yeah, Laurie and Billy would have been added to give Stuart something, a story to pin these card messages on, because you want a storyline to run through. So where most people would probably get one, Laurie and Billy go through four or five of these messages. <laughs> so there's there's a whole lot of CEO messages there. They really want to split up with each other. So um, uh, I, I would perhaps feel a bit more empty empathic towards Laurie and Billy and feel sorry for them if um, they, they were solely created for this song so they could break up with each other that's one hell of a fate for a fictional character that, that's all they're here for so they can split up with each other and another example of how a verse could be a CU card is I don't know why it took so long to listen I'm guessing that I'm stubborn with my heart you were right all along you are not what I want see you <laughs> and and when you know that they came from a card, then then automatically you know I'm I'm not reading it with a sentimental view. I'm not reading it with the sort of emotion and giving it the benefit of anything that I know Stuart wrote himself. And so that's that's where it comes from. What I said about perhaps with this knowledge, we're not giving the song enough of a chance. But um, <laughs> I still. I still think it's, you know, it sounds like it comes from that freaking card, so it doesn't deserve it. But I think he kept the best one for the chorus. That, that's fairly interesting. All the dreams I thought we shared were mine and mine alone. If only you could see in you the things I see in you, but you're too scared to look, see you. We've all heard these words a million times. And I guess what I could have done instead of making the lyrics revert to their original greeting card form is to analyze them deeply and lay out all the possible meanings. But you know what? The knowledge that these words were really not written by Stuart, at best edited by him and just made to fit the song, means that I'm actually analyzing and deep diving on the words of a professional slogan writer. I, I just don't have the interest. There's no personal Stuart insight to be gotten from this song. And he said it himself. This, this comes from greeting cards. And the words might seem heartfelt and nice. But they come from greeting cards. And even if Stuart had added a line or two in the song here and there that were his own, we have no way of knowing which. And it really devalues the exercise of, of dissecting these lyrics to the point where I can't really imagine that anyone would be interested unless they have a weird fascination with American greeting cards from the 90s. So it becomes a little more interesting, perhaps, to discuss the fact that Stuart wrote a song in this manner at all. And... Uh, you know, I appreciate that Stuart had moved to a new country, a new environment, and that there would be new things for him to be inspired by and get ideas from. And I'm not sure that the card section of a bookstore is what I expected him to be inspired by, and I don't think that kind of stuff should have ended up in a big country song. Um, I see this really as the kind of assignment or exercise that a writer will give himself. You, you give yourself a challenge and see how it goes. And that's obviously what Stuart did when he saw these verses laid out in front of him or looked through these cards. His mind started working and it became a songwriting exercise, which is what he did in Nashville in any case. He gave himself some challenges. He tried to grow. He tried to find different methods. And uh, 
people will do that and they will give themselves challenges and and uh, try and build on that and learn new things uh, i'm just surprised that he liked the results well enough to include the resulting song on a big country album and to be honest uh, i'm more than surprised i'm actually i actually find it more problematic simply because i feel a song should offer something or give a glimpse of of who wrote it and this one does not there are no personal insights I really don't think it's humorous. I really don't think it's a particularly good story or, or anything. So the worlds might seem heartfelt, nice, but they come from greeting cards. And the music is rather stale and representative of what the band is, very unlike what the band was doing, both on this album and otherwise. So that's really all I have to say about this song. It's not a song that strikes me as, as having any value. And uh, like I told you tom before we started recording I, i'm i kind of have been going back to my previous comment about you me and the truth being my least favorite big country song i actually think it's see you <laughs> because if, if i if i was given a choice to uh, you know between the two and pick one of them which one would i rather listen to i i i must admit that uh, the beach bongos of you me and the truth has a certain allure that see you does not much better guitar so, solo too yeah, definitely. God, if, if 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 there was anything approaching that in this song, that that would have been sort of the, you know, wading through a cesspool to get to the lone water lily blossoming somewhere in the song. <laughs> oh, the water lily in the cesspool. Yeah, exactly. That that's a beautiful last image. I actually have a a little uh, postscript to my dis- uh, discussion. I'm really done with the song, but I, I got a little intrigued and. I tried to find out, is there anything remotely similar to CU cards to be found in America in 2017? So I searched and I found. Ooh. And uh, believe me, it, it has nothing like the verses of these cards that Stuart wrote. They, they are high poetry compared to what you have out there today. And <laughs> you have the basic slogans, like one of them say, it's not me, it's you. Still are people saying that in 2017. And then, um, and then you have, you're dumped. At least it wasn't by text message. And and then you have the poetic one, uh, which I'm not sure if this is going to end up on the cutting room floor or not. Yeah, roses are red, tomatoes are squishy. I'm finished with you. Your fanny's too fishy. <laughs> <laughs> fanny? So that, they say fanny in America. Um, you I know, believe, in America, fanny means butt. Does it? Yeah. Well, yeah, there has, you go. Yeah. We had a great discussion about that in Nashville when Big Country played. Stuart spoke about that from the stage. Ozzy's is a It's kind of Scottish for the butts. So, <laughs> whereas Fanny in Scotland means something completely different altogether. Means your front bump. It's never fun to talk about a song I particularly don't care for. And on this album, this is that song. I do not like See You. It just feels wrong. Yeah, I agree. Uh, to me, the, what really sets it apart and destroys it from the very beginning is that is the strings. The, the strings just... I remember when I heard that for the first time, I just thought, oh, man. You know, I thought Republican Party Reptile, the, the opening strains of that slide guitar were, were a shock to the system, and they were at the time when I heard it. Uh, but I've I've grown to enjoy that song, but man, when I heard that, 
as I said, it's something that you would hear in an office building, a, a sanitized office building, an elevator, a, a doctor's office, a dentist's office, where they're playing can music. We call it Muzak. You know, it's just th- those string lines and I, strings and songs are great, you know, if they're used well. But those things just reek of cheese. You really, you send right songs and you try and reach out and touch people in that kind of way and, and to feel that you've achieved that, achieved that. Achieved? <laughs> this is very... Very fromage of you. Yes, achieved. It's Gordon Zola. <laughs> he's, a, he's an underachiever. When I heard that for the first time, that was it. I was done with that song. Um, I got to admit, though, when, when going back, listening to this album again so intensely... Um, I really don't, I don't hate this song. I don't, I don't think I ever hated it, but I think I hated what it represented. And you've, you've represented that well. It just, it's not big country. I do agree with you that it was Stewart really doing an exercise in writing. And we saw this throughout his time in Nashville uh, with, with a lot of these demos too. I mean, he wrote songs where he would take on different characters. He never really did that before. He would write about things that, that were more... Um, common i guess maybe is a way to look at it or or something that might be a a typical country song on the radio about a relationship or something um it, it, that those were few and far between i mean most of his songs were still very personal stuart adamson type of lyrics but you did get these experiments and i think this is just one of them um as, as far as why it was chosen as a single uh, i mean i think uh i think at this point probably especially after all the stuff with fragile thing happened the the thought of this doesn't sound like big country was probably the furthest thing from the from the record company's minds or whoever you know track records Ian or whoever I mean this this is like cheap uh, radio bait a type of song it's something that you it's so safe it's so sanitized it's got the strings it's got this quote unquote catchy depending on your point of view type of uh, melody. Um, the instrumentation is like something you'd hear on the radio. And it, it, it was, I could see why it would be easy for someone to say, this probably could get airplay. Let's go with, let's go with CU. Maybe we can get airplay with this, even though it had nothing to do with big country and, and still really doesn't. But, you know, when you strip away that veneer of the, of the music and the strings and a lot of these production choices, which I think this is another example of some of the wrong turns I think Rafe McKenna made, uh, along with some great ones that he made. But this one, he, you know, he, he's all over this, I think, and I think it's all wrong. But when you strip a lot of that away, the song really isn't too bad. It, it's the structure of it, it. Sometimes it reminds me a little bit of e- even of Tracks of My Tears. And obviously that's not a big country song, but just the feel of it uh, and, and just the um, just the vibe of it overall kind of gives me a Tracks of My Tears feeling. But when you put all that junk on top of it, it just neuters completely what if if there was anything to take from this song and i don't i agree i don't think there's much really that just that production just really ruins it and neuters it i do like the mandolin i like that they brought the mandolin back in and that's a nice little part with bruce i'm assuming it's bruce playing the mandolin parts i even think the bridge is kind of cool in this song Uh, we didn't talk about that really it's it's kind of a kind of a neat bridge that takes the song in a different direction musically I don't have anything really to add to it. It's it's 
it was a song that when I heard it, it was very, it, it was almost devastating <laughs> to hear it. Um, you know, I liked Driving to Damascus, the song. I, I, I liked a lot of Dive Into Me. And then I was really waiting for the big, like I do with every album with Big Country, especially in the later years, waiting for that Big Country sound to come back somewhere. And to get this, which was so far removed from from anything that I would have thought from Big Country, I just, uh, yeah, I really had a probably an exaggerated dislike of this song for a long time, and it's only it's only going back um, years later and listening to it more closely that I can at least appreciate some things. And you know, the, your points about Stewart actually not even writing the lyrics to the song are are valid, and, and it's interesting, especially considering that that interview. I don't think though that we know. We don't know. There's no way to say that this line came from the greeting card. This line came from Stuart. I mean, there are some things that maybe I could see Stuart writing. Um, and as you pointed out, there are some things that I could definitely see being on a greeting card. Uh, I guess the the one line that always I thought resonated with me, the the one line from this song is the all the dreams I thought we shared were mine alone. I think we've all probably been at a place like that at some point. If we've had breakups in our life, especially in our adult life, we can relate to that line. So if that did come from a greeting card, I think that's a pretty good line. And I think Stuart chose well if he did steal that one. But if he wrote it, then uh, I think that's a good Stuart line as well. Um, Wait, wasted in a poor song. Yeah. This is a song that, uh, that we've all used the cliche, I think, where we've said, we will say see you to this song. And I will also <laughs> say see you to this song. But the last thing I'll do is read, go back and read what I wrote about this song when I reviewed this album back in 1999. If you haven't listened to the previous shows, or the previous show, where we started talking about the songs, um, I was sent a uh, website that had a review that I did of Driving to Damascus back in 1999 when it came out. I have not gone back to read it. I've saved it to see if my opinions on these songs have changed over the last 20-so years. So let's see what I say about See You. Here, here it is, from 1999. See you. Ah, the object of controversy among BC fans everywhere. Some love it, some hate it. Initially, I have to say I was more in the camp of the latter group. I still don't love the song by any stretch and never will, but it's definitely grown on me a bit since the first few listens. I mean, it's a great song by a lot of standards, but to me, just not by big country standards. Oh, I can't believe I wrote that. I'm... <laughs> I'm not a huge fan of the lyrics, and I don't like the whole see you motif repeating itself over and over. I also really don't enjoy the strings. They sound way too much like Muzak for my ears. Also grating to me is Stewart's bye-bye as the song ends. Just sounds forced and stiff to me. All that being said, I do think the song is quite catchy in many areas, but for me, it's catchy like a cold. <laughs> Give me Hold the Heart or even Sleep There Till Dawn over this one any day. Those songs seem to pack a much more emotional punch. So, there you go. Yeah, interesting you mentioned that this was the song of controversy. Yeah, it takes us back to the days where we were really <laughs> gone off about this song. But uh, yeah, like yeah. you said, though, I don't remember there being many in the song's camp back then, but it does seem to have changed a little over the years. Yeah, it has. And um, another song has also changed but the, the other way, because I don't recall Bella being so hated back in the day as it is now. Oh, it was by me. <laughs> you are the seed sower you're the one that made it spread yeah yeah but uh anyway so what's your rating of cu as if we have to ask well do we include those two uh, bonus tracks 
or all the other bonus tracks. I can put it far down if we include them, but I guess we'll stick with 12. Yeah, let's stick with 12. Uh, yeah, 12 for me as well. Very often we agree on, on the last spot. Yeah, interesting. That is, But interesting. not so often on number ones. That's, that's, and certainly yeah. not as often. I don't believe we will on this album. <laughs> Probably not. Shut! Have at you, Tom and Swine. This is Steve Coulter from Long Beach, California. Thank you very much for all that you guys do to put these podcasts together. I know it's a ton of work, and I had planned to do a speak pipe right at the beginning of the announcement for this deep dive for driving to Damascus. And I, I've been putting it off and putting it off, putting it off because I have such mixed feelings about this album and I have been a harsh critic of it for all these years. And I really wanted to give it a fair shake as it were and, and, and listen to it with 2017 ears and treat it like it just came out and give it a fair assessment and not tie it to the emotions of the period. And they, it, it probably ranks better than I would have given it credit for a few months ago. But there are still some issues with it that I have. And one of them is kind of the production, or maybe even more so the mixing of the album, if I'm being honest. There's just some things that I would have done differently. At least I, you know, I'm not a, I'm not an engineer. I'm not a musician. So there's a ton of ignorance in the things that I'm saying here, but you know, there's some crowdedness to the uh, songs in some place like perfect world, for instance, it's a great song, but it feels extremely crowded where the sounds are stepping on each other throughout the mix and, and I feel like it would just have there's a great song in there just just trying to get out and and I want it to be better but um you know there's also some creative decisions like see you where I love the wordplay of see you and it doesn't feel at all out of line with what Stuart would do uh, in his songwriting, but the strings, violin sounds, all that, it's just, uh, what the hell's going on here? It's, it just, it, it smacks you in the face, right? When you start after two great songs and you're lost a bit at that point, it's, it just doesn't, I don't know, doesn't work for me. And, you know, but, and then you get to Bella and Bella is like, I've heard this song before and it's called Baby Don't Cry by NXS and it came out in 1994. <laughs> it's like, uh, what the hell's going on here? So that sucks. And then you hear your spirit to me and you go, oh, okay. This is one of the best songs I've ever heard and ranks right up there. So you guys go for it. Can't wait to hear the rest. Thank you. 
Perfect world. Now we are back in business. Um, this was the song that I remember hearing and realizing that my speakers were screwed up when I listened to this album for the first time. I think because they had like a panning guitar type of thing going on in the beginning, and I was like, there's something wrong here, and I fixed the speakers. But when I heard Perfect World, um, it just, I was, I breathed a big sigh of relief after See You, because this was a good palate cleanser for that song to me, and it's still, it, it still feels like a great big country song to me. I mean, we start out with, interestingly enough, we start out, and I've heard other people say this before too, with a guitar riff that really seems like it borrows a bit from You Really Got Me. And I don't know if that is intentional, or we know that Ray Davies was involved in in writing other songs on this album. I don't know if When Perfect World came about. But um, it, yeah, I, I always thought that opening guitar part had a You Really Got Me vibe, and it's just kind of funny and ironic and maybe just coincidental that Ray Davies was so involved in this album. And then uh, he was not involved in this song, but you know, then we got that uh, that little riff. We're going to lose a listener, ladies and gentlemen, um, after I'm done here, because Kenny Henderson has said that uh, he despises this song, and depending on where one of us ranks it, he may stop listening to the show. But I'm sorry, Kenny. I hope you I hope you will not fulfill uh, that promise. But um, anyway, moving ahead. Um, perfect World is... As I said, it's the perfect antidote to see you for me. And it's also really what I what I wish the rest of the album could have really lived up to in some respects. I mean, what I mean by that is there are some great examples of this throughout the album of big country changing, of them altering their sound, of them um, evolving, but still feeling like big country. And we've gotten that on other albums too, uh, previous albums. Um, they've they've been evolving and still managed to catch, capture that balance between changing a certain style and still preserving a big country sound. But I think this song particularly on this album is the perfect example of that. It's it's got a it's got a bit of a Celtic feel to it, especially in the verses. Um the chorus has a has a big country galloping type of feel. And yet the guitars on this song really sound different than we've ever heard big country guitars sound before as far as distorted guitars. And I think we hear a similar sound when we listen to the Rafe McKenna treatment of Loserville, where the guitars are just so big and so heavy. And this is an, this is an instance where I give Rafe McKenna just huge props and big compliments for the guitar sounds that he got on this album. And especially the, the, the distorted guitar sounds, because um, these distorted guitar sounds on this song just really crush. I mean, they're, they're, Big Country has used distorted guitar sounds before, but they haven't been this overdriven, and they haven't been this venomous and this biting and this intense. And uh, I just love it. I, I love it. I think it was a really interesting way for them to progress and change their sound and get a little heavier. Um, and when you think about it, when you think about this song compared to a lot of other songs on this album, it really is an impressive range that that Big Country is showcasing on this album. Even if you don't like certain songs, um, don't like certain approaches, it's still, you're, you're not going to find one 
type of of sound on 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 this album, and yet it does have a sort of cohesion to it, maybe with the exception of "See You." But um, this song to me is when we're when we're talking about the rockier type of stuff of big country. This is a great return to form, I think, and really not a country influence in sight on this song, uh, as far as I'm concerned. Um, I love the tempo. It's it's short. It's a concise song. I think sometimes Stewart, by his own admission, and he's he said this, and we'll talk about this when we get to other songs that had to be edited for for single purposes. But he's often had problems writing a short, concise three and a half minute song that doesn't need to be edited when it comes time to release it as a single if it's going to be a single. Not so in with Perfect World. Perfect World. I don't have the running time in front of me, but I know it's it's under four minutes and it's. Uh, it's probably closer to three and a half minutes. Um, let me look at it here. <laughs> nope. <laughs> Actually, it's four minutes and two seconds. What am I talking about? What an idiot! But it's still a very concise song, and it it feels concise. It doesn't feel like there's a wasted moment in this song to me. Um, so just a little bit more musically, I, I think this song reminds me, in some respects, of Message of Love, in that it's got this driving kind of a Middle Eastern guitar sound, which which is a close to Celtic in nature anyway. But I'm thinking of the verses where we've got these, like, this great little uh, guitar riff that kind of uh, goes along with the, the lyrics that Stuart is singing in the verses, and it's got this Celtic Middle Eastern sound, and you've got Mark playing this great drum part, and he's hitting the floor tom and uh, accenting the song with a big floor tom hit. I I think this song just really shows the the great musicianship of Big Country to wonderful effect on this album. Uh, it's it's one of the better examples of it on this album, I should say. Tony's bass playing is all over the place. He's got some great great bass runs. Uh, Mark is playing great drums. The guitars are awesome. If, if there's maybe one thing that I could have seen, although maybe it wouldn't fit the song, but I wouldn't mind some sort of more more traditional big country type of guitar solo in it, but that's a minor, minor thing, and maybe it really didn't need to be there. Um, the opening riff of the song is kind of cool. It's got like a lot of open string pull-off type stuff that's reminiscent of the kind of technique Stuart used to use a, a lot of in the skids. So I think musically, this song is really, really strong, and it's it, it was a very welcome, uh, it was a very welcome placement on this album to come in right here, and it really made really started to make me feel really good about the album. Um, lyrically, I think this is a really interesting song. I don't think it's anywhere close to the best lyrics on this album. Uh, there are, there are some areas where it may be a little simplistic, but I think the the overall vibe of this song lyrically and what Stewart is trying to get across is so deep and so layered and as I listen to it it especially in preparing for this discussion even now new things kind of popped up in my head that I'll, I'll share here as far as my interpretation of the song I mean I think and I'll just start it out at the beginning I think this is another one of Stewart's Christian songs I think this has a big Christian message and we really get it at the end of the song, especially from the lyrics. But we start out with, I searched the world from A to Z, found a lot that made no sense to me. I learned a man is just a man. There's nothing more to understand. And then boom, right into the chorus. I love that. That that, that first verse to me 
is is like a gut punch. I I just think those are great great lyrics, especially that especially that tagline. There's nothing more to understand. Um, I learned a man is just a man. There's nothing more to understand. And then boom, what I'm looking for is a perfect world. I think what we're seeing in this song is that Stuart, the 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 person, uh, the character of the song. I just I believe this is an autobiographical song. Um, he he's relating his search for answers in life. He's, he's looking for something in life to, to make him feel that there's more to life than whatever the mundane he might be dealing with. Um, whatever the, looking at the evil that men do and the, the problems in the world, he's, he's trying to find something that gives him hope that, that makes him think that this can change. And in the beginning of the song, he's looking toward man for that answer. He's looking toward humanity and he's looking everywhere to find find some example of humanity where he it makes him feel like things can change things can be different things can be better we can be better but he learns immediately that no man is just a man there might be good men there might be bad men but in the in the end it all works out to the same thing man is going to destroy itself or man is not capable of leading themselves to the next level of evolution or development or whatever Again, I'm not saying that this is this is something I necessarily agree with, but I I believe this is what he's talking about here. And then when he talks about in the chorus, what I'm looking for is a perfect world, one that I can share with my perfect girl, and then reversing that, what I'd like to find is a perfect girl, one that I can share with my perfect world. In Dive Into Me, I, I mentioned that Stuart talked a little bit about things that were almost idealizations of relationships or things that seemed seemed like he wanted something that really was unattainable. And I think we see that at times throughout this album lyrically, and this is another one of those songs. But in, in this song, though, you can sense the sarcasm in his voice when he says that, when he says, I want a perfect world, I want a perfect girl. You can sense that he knows he's never going to find perfection. He's never going to find the perfect woman. He's never going to find a perfect world. But that's what he wants. He, he's he's desperate for that. It's like he's in a catch-22 situation where he cannot... He cannot relax and just accept the imperfections. He wants to keep going until he finds something that's perfect, even though he knows that is a lost cause. Uh, there's an old line, a lost cause is the only one worth fighting for. And that kind of seems like what the protagonist of this song is doing. He's, he's, he's fighting a lost cause, looking for this perfection. But does he find it? We'll see at the end of the song. Um, and so in the next verse, he, he kind of starts looking somewhere else. He says, uh, I read the books, I watched the stars. Not necessarily the most poetic lyrics you're going to find on this album, but I think this is an interesting verse because it seems like the guy is transitioning from looking toward humanity for the, for his answers, and he's looking more toward nature he's looking into the cosmos he's he's looking at something else beyond humanity he's looking uh at maybe a creator i think is well i think i don't think there's a maybe about it i think when we get to the end we'll see that that's obviously what he's looking at he's 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 thinking of things that are beyond the scope of what a human is capable of doing and it taught him how to laugh again and now he's looking elsewhere for this perfection that he's in constant search for um and then we repeat the chorus, but then we get to what I think is just an absolutely awesome bridge, lyrically. Yeah. 
You can get lost in this and just hear the rhyming of these words and just think, ugh, you know, uh, you know, enough of this. It kind of reminds me of, of um, some of you Americans out there might remember a character that Adam Sandler played on Saturday Night Live years ago. He was called um, he was called Cajun Man, and Cajuns in, in New Orleans are um, they have this they have this they're known for pronouncing uh, they they have kind of a French type of accent, but they're speaking English, and you can really tell when they when they say a word that has T I O N as its ending. They'll, like Cajun man would say it like a uh, manifestation, domestication, civilization. Well, Cajun man, only one more month till America votes for its president. Election. <laughs> what do you think about the candidates? No, Harry Truman. Well, Cajun man, do you think you could do better than these guys? Without question. <laughs> really? Well, what would be your game plan? Legalized prostitution. Interesting. Wow, Cajun man. Imagine if you were president. You get to live in the White House. Not a bad place, huh? Needs renovation. Well, seriously, what could be more perfect than the White House? Playboy Mansion. Oh, yeah, yeah. You, you told me that you were there before. Nonstop jubilation. So every time I hear this, I think of Adam Sandler as Cajun man singing this bridge. But uh, lyrically, this is just a great, great bridge. I mean, in like 30 seconds, Stuart takes us through the, basically, the rise and fall of the earth, of humanity. He says, we got a manifestation, a little bit of animal domestication. So we've got the story of Genesis, maybe, with uh, the, the spirit of God across the waters, the manifestation of God, and he creates the earth. And there's a story in the Bible of how he, uh, after he creates Adam and Eve, he gives them dominion of the animals, and he has them name the animals and domesticate them. And then now we've got civilization and that old-time religion. So we've got a civilization that develops, and one of the first things that developed in, in a civilization was some sort of religion, some sort of god to worship, some way to explain the crazy things that early humans were seeing in the skies that they couldn't explain. And then... We got an empire creation, some industrialization. And I love the line when he says, just a tiny little bit of space exploration. And then a world conflagration. I mean, where, where are you going to find lyrics like this in a typical rock song? I, I just think it's fantastic. He takes you from the very beginning of, of the biblical story of creation all the way up to what I guess he believes is mankind destroying itself. Um, in a world conflag conflagration. Not an easy word to even say, let alone sing. But um, he he puts it in the song and I and he sings it he sings it beautifully and it works great. Um, typically, I, I'm not a big fan of big country going like a, a bluesy R and B type of route in their music. I, I just you know I'm a, I'm an admitted snob when it comes to that with big country, but it works really well here for this bridge for me. I mean we've got like these type of R&B type of seventh chords that they're playing and the, and great bass lines. And it's just really an intense bridge. I, I just love it. And then we get to the final verse. Well, it's really not a verse. He goes back into the chorus. But the final portion of the chorus is where he brings it on home, I think, that this is a song about his faith. He says... And look what I found. It's a perfect love with the sea below and the stars above. 
And I really believe that that's him talking about his relationship with Christ. And we've we've uh, talked a lot about that. I mean, it's it's inescapable uh, when you talk about this album and the songs that sprang from it. We know Stuart was was at his most religious during this time. Um, it was something that he was writing about. It was something that he was reading about. And I think that final portion of the chorus brings that home. So we've we've got a guy who he he looked for answers in the world. He looked for answers with humans. He wanted perfection. He wanted a perfect woman. He wanted people to be perfect the way he envisioned it. He wanted himself to be perfect. And it was only when he finally looked toward God, which he does at the end of this song, that he finds he doesn't necessarily find the perfection in the world anymore. And he maybe he's not looking for it anymore, but he finds what he considers a perfect love that kind of envelops him. And that seems to be enough for the singer of the song as the song comes to an end. So I think this is a great song. I think it's uh, it's a song that I, funnily enough, I I don't think it's the the best song on the album from a from a technical standpoint, from a writing standpoint. Um, maybe not even from a production standpoint, but for me, it's it's my favorite song. It's the one that I go to the most often because it sounds like big country to me, but it sounds like a band, a big country that's evolving while still preserving what makes them great. And it's a song that doesn't have, admittedly, all of the baggage that a lot of these songs do have uh, regarding Stewart's passing. Um that might not be a fair reason to to make it my number one song, but it it, it always was up there. But I think now it's, and, and I I wondered about it even even today. I wondered should I make this my number one because there are other really good songs on on this album, um, and some that I would think are better written in a lot of ways than this song. But this is the song that I go to most often. It's the song I enjoy the most on this album. So even though I it's not perfect, <laughs> ironically enough, but. Um, it's my favorite on this album. The, the one thing that I will say that I don't like about this song is Rafe McKenna put like some sort of keyboard pad under the chords in the chorus. And it almost, it, it's really low, so it's subtle. But it almost, once you once you hear it, it's hard to not hear it anymore. And it almost gives a, gives a sense of like horns playing underneath it. Don't, <laughs> don't like that. Don't like that. Leave, leave the hard guitars alone. And uh, just like they did in the Nashville sessions, which is why I preferred that version of Driving to Damascus, um, I think I still prefer the album version of this song, but I would have preferred to leave the keyboards out of it. But uh, anyway, that's it for me. That's that's my uh, my perfect world. Wow. And off the top of my head, I can't even recall what those horns would sound like. So I think we need to refresh our memories there. Yeah, is it, they're not horns, but they're like this keyboard part, and it's like... Bah, 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 bah. I could see like corns <laughs> being played there, and I don't want that. <laughs> <laughs> they handed out horns to the string section from CU. Yeah, maybe. Interesting. No, that's uh, that was good. Um, you, you were right. We do not necessarily agree on the top uh, song of this album, but uh, it does scrape it into the top half for me too as well. I think it is one of the better songs on the album. That's cool. And uh, we don't need to go through the whole single thing again. I think I emptied myself as CU. This was obviously a joint second single with it. I still think it's a very awkward fit. Um, but just to re- reiterate, I really feel this is the choice the band was behind. It did get the video. 
it does work much better as a single, especially a big country single, as we both said many times by now. And especially also as a single to follow up Fragile Thing and show that the band hadn't forgotten to rock, that it was diverse. But uh, like you said, I don't think that was really a consideration at that point. Right. But um, the song also shares more than a single with See You. It was uh, demoed at the same time uh, at the fourth drum to Damascus demo session at House in the Woods in August 98. And uh, this demo version is uh, quite interesting. Just like See You, it's slower than the album version, but it's relatively similar. It's kind of a smidge slower. But there are some interesting changes. And one of them is that the demo version have an almost dual guitar line running in instrumental passages before verses. I'm a sucker for dual guitar, but I'm not sure that that fits the song as well as what they ended up playing on the album version, which is a much more frantic line, a very high-pitched melody line over a more manic rhythm. And I think that fits the mood of the song quite well. And the thing that hits you off the bat once you get into the actual album version is the tempo. This is a ferocious, driving, almost manic tempo song. So, Yeah, manic makes, is a good word for it. Yeah, really. It, it reminds me of some of the more intense moments from Buffalo Skinner's and Ride Long Face. It's a very 90s rock, big country song. Uh, and, and this decade had its share of solid rock-out moments. Perhaps not so much in Driving to Damascus, but at least on this song, uh, the album shows that there would always be a solid element of rock in their music uh, after a certain point. This is an interesting song. I think uh, you covered really the meaning quite well, so there's not a whole lot to cover. I will try perhaps to not disagree, but offer a couple options. At least on this song, on the album, they show that there would always be a solid element of rock in their music. And this is an interesting song from the perspective of where it fits in with the style of the album. Uh, as we know, Stewart's songwriting was changing a bit. And on this album, and I think he said this himself in several interviews, uh, it's more focused on the songwriting. Less electric, more something you can just sit down and play with an acoustic guitar. And you see that for most of the songs on the album. But this it's one of those where I feel it's a little bit harkens back to more riff-focused and clearly more electric and perhaps even more band-focused. And uh, I was wondering if you would mention this, and I'm curious of your thoughts. This sounds like a riff that is written by Bruce. Oh yeah, I could see that. And they are, all four of them are credited as songwriters, so I could certainly see that. Yeah, they, I'm sure they pitched in all uh, on these things, but I, I just sense this, it, it just sounds like a Bruce... Uh, riff and if it isn't so be it but uh, i i just <laughs> sent some of that there's a lot of the basic guitarism and style that makes me think of some of his demos that he made and certainly some of the demos we heard from previous albums in the 90s they uh, it i don't know if it is but that's how it hits me so um yeah they're all credited and that just uh, underpins perhaps this is one of those songs that they all got into and uh, uh made sure that they weren't all um Stewart's with his acoustic guitar making Nashville songs. This was a band moment that uh, perhaps some of the rock elements got some free reign. And th there would be that. And there, there was room for all kinds of stuff on the band. And I think that's awesome. Uh, but really, the lyrics are the interesting bit. The music is Big Country, the rock band. 
and uh, you've called out a lot of the breaks already. But uh, the lyrics seem to describe a lot of what Stuart was going through. And no matter what um, meaning you give to his words, it, it, it kind of fits. Uh, the spiritual aspect fits to a T. The, the girlfriend aspect fits to a T. The guy who's trying to find his place in the world, moving to a new location, make sense of things, make perhaps a new start, it fits to a T. There's, there's a lot of things from Stuart's sort of what he was going through at the time. It, it all fits. You can make anything fit. Uh, perhaps some parts of the song fits some explanations better than others, but uh, there's, uh, there's room for that. And the, the interesting thing to me is this notion of perfect. The, the thing about the perfect world, the perfect girl, the notion of perfection in life. And uh, I I sort of stopped with the same lines that you called out. I learned that man is just a man. There's nothing more to understand, which is almost the opposite of perfect. Like, I'm just a man or anyone is just, just, you know, mankind with all our faults, issues and particularities. But also that there are no mysteries to what he's really looking for. Like, there's nothing more to understand. He's sort of reached this realization of what he's looking for, perhaps not knowing where to get there, but this thing about the ideal love, the ideal world, the ideal partner, all the things that he puts in. He often writes about aspects of that in previous songs, like uh, One in a Million, like, like that very special woman, Everything I Need, a very special love, and other um, spiritual songs too from the past usually very heartful stuff extremely emotional and what strikes me is that perfect world is nowhere near as emotional about that as a lot of these other songs uh, not even if you just read the lyrics alone without the music and you don't know if it's a ballad or a rocker but the music just underlines that determination and urgency he has made up his mind he's, he's looking for it so um, that's a very interesting um, difference to, to previous songs where he looks for various types of perfections on various areas. So that's, um, that, that's what strikes me. And then you add the music to it, which is very urgent, ferocious. Um, and, uh, and it kind of, it makes total sense suddenly because it's not an emotional, where's my girl? It is a lurking for if it's so alone. But it's not like that. He's very determined looking for, where he's going. We get that in fragile thing. Yeah, for sure. He's tired of looking by that point. Which, which you know, this album has everything. You know, you have the determined Stuart, you have the sad and very vulnerable Stuart, and you have the Stuart who at the end found something. And at the end of this song, literally at the end, he found something because there he found. I see it as more open on it perhaps than you, but uh, what you say makes perfect sense to me. But I just based on the fact that right before he found the perfect love, he was still looking for both the perfect world, both the perfect girl. And uh, I think I think he scored on every front. I just find like uh, he's searching for all these things in the song. He's searching for spirituality. He's searching for his own perfect universe to make sense and a girl to uh, to uh, to fit it. And the interesting thing, no matter how you choose to read it, is that with this ending, this is one of the very few big country songs without a dark cloud hanging over it in the <laughs> yeah. end. It's yeah. actually a positive big country song. 
Maybe that's Isn't why that I gave something? it number one. Yeah, maybe that's why I finally gave it the number one nod because it, it's, especially on this album, yeah. there's actually some hope in this song. It's kind of a breather from a lot of um, the troubles that you see. And uh, even though none of us place particular weight on a song like See You, it's still a sad song. It, it drags. And all the other songs, they're kind of draggy, unless, you know, Driving to Damascus is kind of storytelling and more intriguing. Which as you as you get into the album, there's a lot of a lot of um, things, a lot of baggage, and this song could have been a breather. And from that perspective, perhaps should have been slightly later in the album. But as you say, it needs to follow "See You" because as a palate cleanser, this is the one. And uh, I don't think any other song, possibly "President," could have also been sort of a counterpoint. But I think "Perfect World" is by far the better song of the two, and you need the best to 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 get out of that other one. So yeah, the notion of perfect, that, that's um, that's really what strikes me as I read the song and what, what is perfection. And um, uh, obviously those who look to spirituality um, will uh, refuse to say that anything but that is perfect. But I think uh, if you don't take it at face value, but uh, maybe he's being ironic. Maybe it's a very subjective perfect. I almost take it as a latter, like um, like Grace Jones has this song called I'm Not Perfect, But I'm Perfect For You. And maybe that's more what it is. Like I'm looking for, for example, the girl who is perfect for me. And of course, she won't be universally perfect. But uh, the perfect expression makes more sense if you take it to that or it becomes a more realistic goal. So, um, yeah, I don't know how to really at the end of the day take this song. I take it more as light entertainment compared to some of the relatively heaviness of the rest of the album and especially the music just helps make it a very fun song it's a, it's one of those songs that no matter what it's about when you play it live you push your fists in the air and you go yeah and that's uh, that's perfect for this it's yeah. a perfect fist yeah song. and it even fits for once thematically <laughs> yeah and it's a positive song you're not saying yeah to the destruction of well actually you kind of are when you look at the bridge <laughs> to the destruction of mankind, <laughs> world conflagration. Yeah, and, one, and two, three, four. I didn't mention four. that wonderful bridge. I didn't mention that wonderful bridge. That's uh, it's a lyrical crash course in the rise and fall of humanity. It's basically the history of mankind in eight lines. I think it's wonderful. It's funny and it's creative. Did you steal that line from me? You haven't said that line. Yeah, but I'm I, I'm looking at it. Look. Look, I'm going to read it right now. Here's what I wrote. Okay. Here's what I wrote back in 1999. Okay, now we're back on track. I love this tune, possibly my favorite on the album. It's a great meeting between old and new big country. I love the mystical nature of the verse lyrics. Reminds me of something from The Seer. And the guitars sound really gritty and excellent in this. The chorus is amazingly memorable and catchy. And a big highlight is the bridge, where Stu offers us a lyrical crash course in the rise and fall of humanity. <laughs> Are you kidding me? I swear. No. <laughs> yes. I love it. So creative. If there's any justice in the world, this should be a huge single somewhere. <laughs> uh, I said funny and creative. God. You're scaring me. You're scaring me. Friggin' thief. No, but it, that's exactly what it is, though. I mean, how many ways can you say that? I know. It's, um, <laughs> and I've never heard anything like that in a song before. No, so I haven't. It's and cool. That's really what it is. It's, uh, it's the history of world. And um, Kenny, Kenny, please don't stop listening, Kenny. <laughs> Kenny!
Sorry. You killed Kenny, you <laughs> bastard. <laughs> we love you, Kenny. I'll make it easier on Kenny. It's not my number one. Uh, like I said, it did scrape into the top half for me. So it's my number six. All right. That's cool. That's respectable. Quite respectable. Hi, this is Ayelet from Israel. I clearly remember the first time I listened to Driving to Damascus. I was actually driving up the Cross Israel Highway when I first listened to it. Whenever I want to listen to a record for the first time, I take it on a long drive, and I've been waiting to do this, because for me, this was the last piece in the puzzle. After rediscovering Big Country just a few years ago, and learning at the same time what had happened with Stuart, I just had to find out how on earth did we come from that to this, from stay alive that I remembered and believed in, to the absolute opposite. So although I had read everything I could find on the internet, watched YouTube videos, chatted with some fans, etc., I felt the best way to get the story right would be to listen to the albums in order, from one to eight. So I got hold of all of them. I had only had The Crossing and The Seer up until then. And did just that, letting each one sink in for some time before moving on to the next one. And the story they told me from the seer onward was indeed getting more and more upsetting, not just lyrically, but also musically, because with the exception of the Buffalo Skinners, it mostly sounded to me like misguided attempts to please. So I had put off reaching the final chapter and set out driving with a mixture of anticipation and apprehension. The first track was okay. Second track, not bad. I actually love it now. But that was my first impression. The third made me want to switch the radio off. I couldn't bear the way it sounded. And at the same time, the lyrics saddened me deeply because I felt that regardless of the names Laurie and Billy, Stuart was writing from his own experience. Track four left me indifferent, which saddened me even more. And then came somebody else. I remember myself gaping at the first verse, and by the end of the chorus, remember I was on the highway, I knew I had to pull over. My eyes were welling up, and I couldn't keep my attention on the road. The cynical lyrics, plainly autobiographic, painted such a vivid picture of angry and painful loneliness, and I felt at that moment this was it, the piece that I was missing. I turned the radio off, left the highway, parked my car, started the song from the beginning, listened to it twice, and then took the disc out and left the rest of it for another time. Since then, I've listened to Driving to Damascus many times. I consider some of the songs on it among the best in Big Country's repertoire. But whenever I put it on and hear that engine switched on, I'm back on that highway, gasping for air. Hey, everybody. This is Kara Cooley from New Jersey. And before I get into the one song I'd like to talk about, I just want to say, I just want to kind of put this out there. I wonder if somebody else has had the same experience as me regarding this album. So you're talking to somebody about Big Country, right? And if they don't know too much about the band or anything at all, they might go, well, is that a country band? And you go, no, it's a rock band. But then you remember driving to Damascus and you have to go, mm, well, mm, a little bit. They got a little country with their second to last album that they released. So that's just something that driving to Damascus does to me. I wonder if it does that to anybody else. But anyway, the one song I would like to talk about is Somebody Else. And I, 
I don't know if you know what the general consensus on this song is, but I feel like it's a little it's a simple song that works well. And you know, the instrumentals are simple, the the vocals aren't over the top, the lyrics aren't amazing, but it just works. It comes together, it's it's catchy, it's relatable, and I think the live version on Come Up Screaming is just really great because you know, because it's so simple, it all translates well to live performance, and I just really like it. I don't know if it's my favorite song on the album. Um, I don't really have a strong favorite, but it's definitely a song that I come back to all the time. So, thanks for listening. Stay alive. Well, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll play the single, which is somebody else. Just before we play it, um, Ray Davis collaboration. Yeah. How did that come about? Yeah, we... He is a, such a huge inspiration. Virtually everybody I talk to on this show, Ray Davis is like mentor. No, he's a, the man's a god, totally. Yeah. He's the, the best British pop writer of all time, yeah. in my humble opinion. Uh, Definitely. Best lyricist in Britain. Um, have you always been mates or something? Or? No, he, he was wanting to play Glastonbury and do a bunch of kink songs, but he didn't want to reform the band because mm. I think there's a certain amount of rancour there, you know? <laughs> and... Uh, uh, so he'd seen, us, he'd seen us play live on, on some TV show and really dug the band and called us up and asked if we wanted to be the kinks for a day and we went, oh, not off, mate. Oh, isn't that great? <laughs> totally. And uh, him and I just really hit it off and invited me to go to New York and, and hang out with him for a few days and write and I'm like, no. <laughs> <laughs> and he went up and, and we had a blast, just kind of hung out together and wrote some songs and went to dinner and stuff and it was very sweet. I bet. He has a really cool place in New York too, I have Does to say. he? Yeah, right over Central Park. It's like, oh, oh, nice oh, what a great place to live. It's sort of where, where John Lennon, that kind it's, of thing. It's the, next, it's the very next building. Really? The Dakota, yep. Oh, how cool is that? That's very cool. <laughs> Okay, and that takes us to the third song in a row that was a single from this album, Somebody Else. It was the third and final single from Driving to Damascus. This was a standalone single released on the 29th of May 2000, so quite late in the proceedings. And it charted in the UK, and I don't know if you're going to be impressed at this one, at number 126. Oh, man. And according to Ian Grant, the final sales of the single was 647 copies. Wow. It was released way after the album was out. So this was, um, yeah, it almost seemed like an afterthought. So that's, uh, I don't know what they expected from that. At no, the point. Like, why bother? I don't understand. But maybe they just, took yeah. sh- maybe it's like what we call in uh, American football, where you, you're losing a game and you just, you, you have to get a touchdown to win, and you're far away from the end zone, and you do what's called a Hail Mary, where you just throw the ball as far as you can and just hope and pray that your guy will catch it in the end zone. And it works maybe <laughs> it works maybe 1% of the time, but sometimes it does work. So maybe that this was their Hail Mary pass. In trouble in the backfield, wants to throw down, he's going to go deep. And I mean deep, and I mean touchdown in a miracle finish. A Hail Mary that's full of great. Hail Mary. God, that's funny. Well, okay. Um, Be it as it may, uh, they demoed this at the seventh and final demo sessions for the album that we have songs from, and uh, at House in the Woods again, 
in December 1998. So this came late in the proceedings. Just a couple of months later, they would go into the studio to start recording the album. And they made um, definite versions of four songs during those sessions, the others being the title track, Devil in the Eye, and Trouble the Waters. So that means they demoed both of the Ray Davis songs in the same session. And just to mention that at this point, uh, there's been mention of a third Ray Davis song that Stuart and Ray wrote together, that they wrote three songs together. But there are only two songs on the album. And Bruce clarified on Facebook recently that, yes, there was a third song written by Stuart and Ray, but it didn't come to fruition. He don't even think there was a title for it. And uh, certainly the band didn't record it. So there's not likely a third song knocking about, but... uh, if anyone has Stuart's personal notebook, there might be something about it there. So um, let's focus on the two we have. And uh, this is a good time to look a little closer on the creative partnerships the band had with Ray Davis. Uh, it started in 1997. And when we talked about the timeline, we mentioned the band having a break in 1997. But even so, there were a few things that happened that they did together. And one of them was to perform on the Glastonbury Festival. And that happened on the 28th of July, uh, where Big Country played as Ray Davis's band. And Ian Grant tells the amusing story of how this happened in the liner notes to Rarity 6, which I will read for you now. And it says, In 1997, Ray Davis's secretary called my office. She said, quote, Are Big Country's rhythm section available to do Clastonbury with Ray? He wants to do a Kings set and isn't working with his brother at present. Uh, I said they weren't, but that big country was. Where did you find this that recording? I didn't know that. That's amazing. Did you, where did you find that? No, I, I reached deep. <laughs> uh, uh, I said they, they weren't, but that big country was. This puzzled her. I always jumped at opportunities that benefited the band and thought I would turn this one round so it suited them all and not merely Tony and Mark. Ray was delighted. They rehearsed in Cornwall, minus Bruce, who was otherwise engaged. Then they did a great set at Glastonbury. Ray took a liking to the band. He couldn't believe how good they were and why they were without the recording deal. He made it known to me that he would like to continue working with them in some capacity. Unquote. And that, that quote from Ian Grant tells a lot of how the friendship between Stuart and Ray started, which led to the writing partnership. And, uh, and for a long time, it was discussed that Ray would have some role to play with the band. It was sort of an undefined role. But Ray did take a liking to them. And uh, uh, Ian Grant also shares a story on the initial uh, time together, also from the Rarity 7 sleeve notes. Quote, so there were writing sessions in Sussex, Scotland, in London, at Ray's Kong Studios, in New York and in Nashville. Ray came to one in Sussex, and I found him outside the building, standing in the drizzling rain. I suggested we go inside, and he said, no, I get more from listening to them outside with them not knowing I am here than if they were (laughs) playing to me inside. (laughs) Stuart also wrote three songs, which is why... That, where that reference come to, I guess, uh, of which two were completed at Ray's New York apartment. The band was somewhat in the doldrums, but the enthusiasm from Ray galvanized them. So uh, that um, that's also an interesting one, especially the last admission there, that they, they were sort of a little down and out after the wide long phase and all the long work they did and without the recording deal and 
what now? And in comes Ray, and uh, he encourages them. He writes them. He talks of producing them. He talks of uh, them signing to his uh, label, most of which didn't happen, as we know today. Uh, but we have two songs that Ray co-wrote. And for all the other things that didn't happen, at least he got them moving and he got them working. And uh, and so we now are at one of those songs that he wrote, Somebody Else. And that's uh, it's interesting to look at this song and what it represents to Big Country. Because it is a song that perhaps stretches a little bit from what we're used to. But on this album, I feel it fits. And uh, as, as a lot of this album explores this type of songwriting, and uh, it's not even any stretch the most far out song on the album. It's an example of how writing with an outside writer will still not push the band too much off the beaten path as far as uh, as far as fitting with the country. Uh, I, I, I think we have an example later in the album where perhaps I feel that did happen, and the style sounds more like it could have fitted Ray's old band. But uh, somebody else is a great co-writer, as far as I can can see, and um, as far as helping Stewart's craft a song that perhaps he wouldn't quite have written this way on his own but a lot of it I feel also fits what Stuart could have written and it totally works as a Drive to Damascus era big country song uh, largely written by Stuart Adamson if so but I, I definitely hear the Ray influence and so um, especially from a lyrical perspective it's impossible to talk about this song without talking about the Ray Davis influence and uh, the, the thing that always fascinates me is how much you know, where, where does the line go down? You know, was it a 50-50 equal writing partnership? Yeah, that's what I want to know, too. Yeah. And did a lot of it primarily come from Stuart? Did it primarily come from Ray? Who wrote which parts? And uh, was it more a lyrical? Was it more a musical partnership? This this always fascinates me. You know, no matter the band, that that's what I want to know always. And especially here with the more extraordinary co-writes like Stuart and Ray Davis. That's that's a pretty incredible, uh, the more you think about it, that they ended up writing something. So how much did come from Ray? How much came from Stuart? We can't possibly know. The only way to find out now is to ask Ray Davis. Um, that is not likely that that will happen, but uh, we can look for ourselves and look at uh, each writer's background and history, and especially looking at the uh, the topic of the song. I don't think I have ever seen any comment from anyone that this lyric is a Ray lyric. When you go down the lyrics of this thing, what I see is everybody looking on this song almost exclusively as a very autobiographic lyric by Stuart, who obviously split up from his wife a few years earlier. Um, and we have... Um, examples from Ray writing songs of this topic before. So I'm I'm less convinced. I think perhaps Stuart had a lot of the direction for the song, but I think Ray influenced a lot of the style. And Ray has written songs about the closure of relationships before. And the one song he wrote that seems to be the closest to somebody else is the song Property from the King's 1983 album, State of Confusion. That is a song that is much more heartfelt than uh, somebody else. But one example of the lyrics in that song is... We take the photographs, the ones of you and me When we proposed and last to please a family Nobody noticed them, we wanted to be free And now there's no more love, it's just a property 
So it points to the same thing, that it's the end of the relationship and it's all about the things. Uh, it's a much more bittersweet take on splitting up. Um, it is just like somebody else's song, which it looks at the breakup in, uh, in terms of all the stuff you accumulated over the years. And now that you have split up, you need to kind of deal with it. And uh, there's one more sample from the end of the song that is quite telling if you compare it with somebody else, where he says, Another little gift we thought we'd throw away The useless souvenirs bought on a holiday We put them on the shelf, now they're collecting dust We never needed them, but they outlasted us and all the little gifts we thought we'd throw away, the useless souvenirs bought on a holiday. We put them on a shelf, now they're collecting dust. We never needed them, but they outlasted us. These, these words are much more bittersweet than anything we find on a song like Somebody Else, which is much more tongue-in-cheek about the aftermath, really, of a split-up. And, and that is what Ray is known for, really, being the observer, the tongue-in-cheek commentary using sarcasm and cynicism to often comic effect. Uh, for Stewart, that wouldn't be Tulsi employed very often. And you can look back at Wide and Long Face and a song like Post-Nuclear Talking Blues, which is possibly the best example of that so far. Very tongue-in-cheek and really very Ray Davis. Uh, Ray would often write stuff like that, and Stewart just didn't. And, and my stance is still that um, Post-Nuclear Talking Blues doesn't really work as a song for Stewart or Big Country, but here... He has some help, and I think it works a lot better. So if you look at the actual words to somebody else, it starts with... I walk through the debris of cardboard and clothes Trying to work out where everything goes I'm short of you and a book or ten And I'd love to hear those Leonard Cohen songs again Love those lines. And this is where, where he reveals what the song is about, right from the start. He's sorting out his shit. And amongst the stuff that he's missing, that he's looking for, he's lost the other person. But it's not highlighted. It's on the same level as those books. Like, I'm short of you and a book or ten. It's kind of like no big uh, proclamation that he's lost his, his one true love or anything like that. Yeah, you're missing, these books are missing, and almost gives a lot more weight to, damn, I'd love to hear that song again. And, uh, even that that's repeated a couple of times in the song just makes it a little bit more. I think, I think all of us, independent of whether we're going through a breakup or not, or not sometimes we'll just say, ah, oh, that song would be good to hear. So, oh, yeah, and we know how, how much Stuart loved Leonard Cohen, so you got to think that he probably did at least write that line. Yeah, and you know the funny thing is, I used to think, and I'm still, I I see it on John's page, and it, it does say I'm short of you, and that makes total sense. I used to think it said I'm short a view, <laughs> a v i e w. I'm short of you and a book or ten, as if he had a better view where he used to live with his with his previous lover. Let me pull up the the book because I have the book here. Maybe I'm short a book or two or ten is what it says there. Maybe I'm short a book or two or ten? That's what the lyrics say. I'm sure that this was changed. This is another example of what we saw, for example, in The Crossing, where lyrics were changed. I refuse to say, uh, I refuse to agree that he sings all that. And is that in the lyric sheet of the album? I pulled out the CD booklet and I quote, Maybe I'm short a book or two or ten. 
That's weird. <laughs> that's very strange. It's open for debate. This is very open for debate, and that's sort of unraveling a lot of what I'm saying, but I don't care. It's okay. Well, no, I but, mean, it's um, still, it's still the, the, that I'm short of you is still the main theme that goes through the whole song. Yeah, it, it is. But uh, again, it's downplayed. And even let's, let's assume that's what he says. Uh, even so, it's sort of not highlighted any more than the books. And the Leonard Cohen song almost has much more weight than either. So um, it's, it's kind of, um, it's, it's a person that we're not catching at the peak of his grief. He's over the heartache. Perhaps he's not over the bitterness and perhaps not over some sadness, but it's no longer overwhelming, clearly. And uh, the song is full of what I call gallows humor, and I assume that translates. Um, oh, yeah. And you, can, and you can make wisecracks at the, the situation without it being awkward. You know, it's really, it happened a little while ago, and now we're practical. We're sorting through the shit, and it's not a fun situation, but the hurt isn't swelling up. You're in the face where you just go, fine, I'll deal with it. So... There's a saying, show me your possessions and I will tell you what kind of person you are. And this song is full of items and possessions. So let's see what we find here. So as we proceed in the song, this guy has self-help books, motivational videos. He's trying to improve himself. Take it stuff from the late night show. So they've done stuff. Uh, and this line, which I refuse to think Stuart wrote, this has to be our Ray line. Non-essential items of dysfunctional ease. That's Ray. <laughs> yes, it's got to be. It's got to be Ray. That's My so favorite him. line in the song. It's very cool. <laughs> that, so, so, so him. And then to, to, to rhyme with that, I don't have no room for those water skis. And you can just see it. <laughs> Self-help books and motivational videos. A ticket stub from the late night show Non-essential items of dysfunctional ease I don't have no room for those water skis You can keep that kiss me hat The one that I bought in Spain You can keep my scaling straight Up the stairs, sitting by the window, looking out at the rain. I'd love to hear those Leonard Cohen songs again. I find a lot of this funny, and uh, you can take it anyway. You can take it the funny way, or you can take it as the bittersweet thing. Someone going through his shit after a breakup, and it's sad. But it's it's not written as a sad thing. It's so full of sarcasm it's very ray that way and it's kind of fun that the example i used from ray's own song is so dripping almost with regret and, and sadness but the song he did with stewart who is more known for that is going the opposite way um another fun thing the, the kiss me hat that he bought in spain <laughs> yeah you can keep that and that's clearly a fun gag from a, a holiday a souvenir and then i'm gonna have to ask you what is a scale of tricks I didn't know what that was either when I when I first um, heard these lyrics. I had no clue. Um, but I believe it's. Hold on, let me see here. I'm looking at it right now. 
Scalex Trek. Scalex Trek is a toy brand for a range of slot car racing sets, which first appeared in the late 1950s as a creation of British firm Mini Models. The brand is currently owned and distributed by Hornby. Um, a, a track-based slot car racing system first invented by Fred Francis. Scalex Trex was first made in Harvard, Hampshire in 1956. It's like a little slot car racing set. He should bring that. The girl is never going to keep that. She's yeah, going to seriously. What's she going to want with that? <laughs> yeah, so there's a lot of really hodgepodge of, of, of stuff in the song, but I think... The, the line that always makes me laugh, it's all the stuff I thought was good for my health. You can leave it all on the bathroom shelf. <laughs> he thought was good for his health. Yeah, well, nice. The song goes through it, and and uh, I don't know really if there's anything to take from, from these items. It's basically items from a life together, and uh, that's what it underpins. They have the souvenirs from their holidays. They have the ticket stuff from the shows they've gone to. They have... Um, it's it's memories. It's not just items. It's memories. Apart from the car set, that is clearly something he played with on his own, and he should keep that. Um, you can keep the walk because it matches the satellite dish. Another. <laughs> and, <laughs> That's a uh, Ray line if I ever heard one. Yeah, it, it, he would do that. And the crew neck sweater that I wore to the Talking Heads gig. That also a bit yeah. peculiar, really. Very. And then. Uh, then we get into the interesting lines in the song. I don't need that angry sex. I can find that for myself. <laughs> Am I allowed to say anything about that angry sex? Yeah, this, this what, time they're actually setting you up for, for it. It's it's right in your face, unlike the teacher. So yeah, and I can and I can talk about what he finds for himself that replaces that. I mean, I can I can go there. Um, <laughs> Feel free. <laughs> it, it almost doesn't really, you know. It, it it tells about the state of the relationship as it is. You know, clearly they um they have been going at it for a while, almost perhaps going through the humdrums at the end, and to the point where they're annoyed at each other and just oh, you know, sod it. And, you know, I um, it's not really sex with love anymore. It's sex with anger or maybe even I don't care anymore. Going through the motions, literally, and uh, well, it's like that yeah. angry breakup sex that people talk about you know like you like after you've broken up with someone a spouse and then you get back together with them to figure out things i thought so, that was makeup sex well this is no this because this is this is a sexual thing where there is no making up of the relationship it's just like you you've already you're getting divorced or you have gotten divorced that's how i always took this line it's like yeah. he's, he's back at the place and trying to get a box of crap and they're gonna have maybe one little fling and it's there's anger involved <laughs> like she's offering and he says i don't need that angry sex yeah that's how i took it that's how throwing I it. it at her oh man you you you're melodramatic <laughs> i like it maybe this should have been a video could be but he's yeah well we'll see uh, i mean <laughs> there's a lot of really you know perhaps that's some lines for the bitterness come more to the fore than the rest of the song but really honestly the most interesting line and really the key piece to what the song is about can be found in really the, the latter part of the chorus, which is you can keep that body. It belonged to somebody else. That is the crux of the song to me. And you, you can start wondering who he is singing about. You know, what happened here? Who else did that body belong to? Was she cheating on him? Was she having an affair? It might be hard to say at first, but then you really understand he's talking about himself. He's a different person now than he was before. And he reveals this at the end of the song where he says, you can keep that body. It belonged to somebody else. Hey, I was somebody else. 
yeah, somebody else. You can speculate about what caused the change. Was it the end of the relationship or was it just them growing apart? Like they were different people than they, than they both are now. Or at least he was a different person than he is now. And that could hint that the reason that the split off of the song happened or the split off of the people in the song is happening. They grew apart. They were different people before. And her body belonged to the guy he used to be, not the guy he is now. Because they clearly have grown apart. So that's uh, that's really the crux of uh, of really the background, and then you have really <laughs> going through all the stuff and and figuring it out. Uh, there are some interesting lyrics in the demo that were taken out, and a lot of the lyrics in the song were repeated twice, and that's sort of a song writing or a storytelling really device that um, you hear it again, you enforce it, and I don't feel like it's blind repetition i feel it feels i think the song builds nicely with it and and uh, it helps underpin what is going on but something was taken out compared with the demo and that is the second repeat of the you can keep that kiss me hat the one i bought in spain you can keep my skeletrix and all of my subito men so the line we didn't get was the one about the subito men and that is a type of football or, or soccer for you yanks where you kind of you use your fingers to to <laughs> move the ball from from guy to guy on the board and try to score a goal. Um, Subito, of course, is um, is the sport that Bruce Watson is the world champion of Subito, and um, they played it a lot, uh, I guess, on tour or certainly in studios. <laughs> and if anyone out there thinks they can take on Bruce Watson and in Subito and take his championship, think again. He will hand your ass to you. He's the champion <laughs> of that one. But uh, that didn't last the song. And that would almost have been uh, an inside big country type joke. Because um, I remember the band member talking a bit about Subito back in the bulletin board man, uh, days. So um, that's that one. Uh, I think just to summarize all of this, I think the, the lyrics are very clever. And I don't get sad. I see some people get sad over the song. And I get it. It's a it's a song that you could get sad about. I actually think the song is funny, <laughs> and and I don't feel bad about thinking that because a lot of the time it it clearly tries to be, but there is a deeper meaning to it as well. I don't sit and laugh from beginning to end. It's really making light of a sad situation. It's gallows humor. It's wry and ironic and definitely very much in the vein that Reed Davis would usually write. And I hear his influence here many times, and some lines are definitely him. Some lines are definitely Stuart. I mean, I didn't call out any of that because that kind of goes without saying. Uh, but if you listen closely, there's a lot more going out uh, under the surface. So I do not see this as a super dark song. I see it probably as putting on a brave face or maybe hiding the sadness because it is a little bit sad, but not like the crux of sadness. It's the aftermath. It's more the practical approach to the end of that sadness. But you can make light of that, or at least some of the things. And that's what this guy is doing, I guess, to carry himself onward. So whether it's cynical, whether it's bittersweet, whether it's humoristic, 
I hear all of those things and more. So I think lyrically, this is quite a, a fun song. Uh, musically, just to touch briefly on that, uh, I think um, it's it's such a well-crafted song. This this is really is a song that um, I always kind of liked it, but it's really grown on me over the years more than I think a lot of the other songs on the album, and it starts even to the beginning with the, those nice guitar lines in the beginning. And I didn't call this out for the demo, but the demo also has half of those guitar lines. They actually added the rest. So the demo would have half of the guitar line intro, and the finished studio version would have the full guitar line intro. So they, they, they completed it uh, in that transition. <laughs> very nicely after that intro into a verse and into a bridge and a second bridge and then chorus it just uh, it refuses to follow the the usual formats and it just flows naturally from part to part and there's a lot of parts to this song and it always fits the story he's trying to tell which is another thing that you know ray would have contributed to that he's sort of the Wrote, can write the handbook on songwriting. Uh, it's a very song-driven song. Uh, I don't know what the chorus is, though. I, I think it doesn't have a very clear chorus without it being a problem. It keeps building, and it just keeps being catchy, and it goes from part to part, and everything is kind of memorable. Uh, but then there's section where he says, all that stuff I thought was good for my health onward. That is potentially the chorus, but you could also say that the next part is the chorus where um, you can keep that part it belongs to somebody else more as a sort of conclusion or the the last bit before you sort of turn the deck of cards and start all over again it's this is a song that is just so interestingly built i, I keep listening to to how it's built and how it works this is clearly written by somebody who knows how to write the song it's really fascinating and um i've, I've sort of gone a bit back and forth and you know i've always thought it was a good song and this is just to use your own uh, phrase, and this time I'm, I'm telling you that because <laughs> I'm not copying you. But you, you mentioned this thing. It's a good song, but it's not a good big country song. Uh, that that would be something I said to begin with. But over the years, I actually quite sternly believe that this is a good big country song. It sits very comfortably on this album. It uh, has the band playing away. You can hear every band member doing exactly what they're good at. And they have some input from Ray, so clearly there's a little bit of outside. But it does have a foot in what I think the band is all about, and also a foot in something interesting. And I think uh, somebody else was the successful or the most successful collaboration with Ray, and it turned into a great, great uh, song on the album. Uh, I remember, to wrap it up, I remember that this song took a little bit of time to grow on me, but it really has become... One of my favorites from the album, really. And the chorus beats out really hard, triumphantly, uh, which is a bit ironic when you think of what they're about. Like singing proudly from the mountaintop about how all the stuff on the bathroom shelf, you can just keep that. <laughs> so that's, that's definitely a bit new. But uh, I think the lyrics are very clever and they are quite relatable on some level. Um, I probably wouldn't have picked it as a single. I think it's a much better album track than a single, but I love the song regardless. Yeah, that's good. That's good. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's a. I, I think you summed it up well when you say it's it's clearly written by someone who knows how to write a song, and I think the the Ray Davies influence is just all over this musically, lyrically, and as you said, I would love to know who wrote what. I mean, I'm I'm not at all trying to minimize whatever Stewart's contributions might have been, but the thing about this song that stands out to me. Um, and this doesn't necessarily disqualify Stewart from having a larger role in it, but it is a very standard um, rock and roll type song. I mean, when I say standard, I don't mean that necessarily as a criticism, like it's like it's something you hear everywhere else, because there are a lot of really original ideas in the song and in the creation of the song. But as far as the playing of it um, and the, the, the sound of it, the instrumentation, it's it's a rock and roll song. And that's probably why it rates lower for me, even though I recognize it as good songwriting craft. I, I still, I still hold to my original feeling about this song, and you said it. It's like it's a good song, but to me, it's not a good. It's it's not a, really a big country song to me. There's like there's like nothing in this song musically that that sounds unique in the way that big country sounds unique to me. It sounds like. Even though it's good, it's played well, it's got good parts, and there are a few little maybe Mark Brzecki flourishes in there that stand out, but most of it seems like a, a really good band, a really good rock and roll band playing the song, but it doesn't sound like a big country type of sound to me. And, you know, playing traditional rock and roll isn't what drew me to big country, so while I can recognize this as a good traditional rock and roll song with some catchy and incisive and interesting lyrics... um. I remember listening to it. I just thought, uh, you know, this is this is fine. This is this is a good song, but it's not really it's not what I'm looking for. It's not what I want from big from big country. And I'll say that a lot of times on this album. And and as and also I'll be surprised at times thinking it's not something I wanted and turns out to actually really grow on me over the years. So from for me, I think the other Ray Davies song had more of the effect on me as this one had on you, whereas I held it at arm's length at first, but it, it's grown on me a lot more over the years. But, but yeah, I mean, it, it's really well-produced. This is a really well-produced song. It's got like nice distorted parts with that mixture of clean guitar parts that really gives the song a great texture musically. Um, I, I think for me, it's a, it's a little plodding at times, maybe tempo wise, like sometimes just kind of like, and it needs to be. I mean, that's kind of the feel. The, the feel of the music matches the the tone of the lyrics, I think. It's just kind of this guy, you know, trying to make the best of a terrible situation and trying to find some humor in, in something that's, you know, not really a very uh, humor-driven type of thing, obviously. But he's he's trying to make the best of it. And I kind of get the feeling of him just sort of meandering around, getting his new place set up with the tiny room and a couple of chairs and having to having to drag this refrigerator up the stairs with maybe a buddy of his and it almost it almost makes me think of uh for some reason it makes me think of the dude from the big lebowski he's <laughs> just like this guy just kind of oh man you know this sucks but what are you going to do you know that's kind of the 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 feel that he's he's got here um but yeah, I mean, there's. You've talked about all the things that I would talk about as far as the great lyrics, uh, non-essential items of dysfunctional ease. I think it's just so great. That's such a great line. And and when I see like the self-help books and motivational videos too, it's like that really tells tells a story and, and fills in a lot of the gaps. You get the sense that this couple tried to make it work. Like they 
they I don't because I don't take that necessarily as being just self help books for the for the guy singing the song. I get it. I, I take it as being like yeah. some sort of couples therapy or let's try to work on on our on our marriage or our, our relationship. And they got these books to see how they could help each other out and motivational videos and you know those things so rarely seem to work. <laughs> you know, it's like once you get to that point, it's kind of like. Maybe sometimes it works, but other times it's like uh, you're just you're just treading water until the inevitable. Yeah, you're clutching at straws, and also you can look two ways at the kiss me hat that I bought in Spain. Like I buy this cat, this hat. I look to my beloved with the hat expectantly, and you do not get kissed. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, and and also, um, you know, the the whole line of I don't need that angry sex. I can find that for myself. You can keep that body. It belonged to somebody else. I think definitely, especially as you said, as he's going out in the coda of the song and he says, I was somebody else, you know, clearly he's talking about himself. But uh, you, could also, you could also look at that as when he says the body belonged to somebody else, you could also think about it as he's talking to her as well. You know, like she's changed perhaps and become a person that he no longer recognizes or she's not the same person that she used to be when they were, you know, at the at the pinnacle of their relationship so the person she is now is somebody else versus who she was when they would have uh when he would have embraced the idea of sexual relations with her <laughs> so a lot of interesting ways you can take the lyrics and that's just a sign of really good smart lyric writing and and they've done it here um what i always thought was funny and i i the, the talking heads reference i remember hearing that and you know, again, back to my big country snobbery. There are like certain things like, like I don't want to hear that in a big country song. Don't talk about talking heads. Don't have really anything against the talking heads, but <laughs> don't bring it down to that level. But w- what was funny about that is, I don't know if you remember this, but when they would play this song live, and this might give you an indication of at least who wrote this particular line, um, but when they would play this song live, Stuart would often change that lyric to, I think talking heads are pish. <laughs> <laughs> It almost made it seem like Ray Davies put that line in there, and he's like, uh, you know, I'm going to get you back for that when I sing it live. But, um, yeah, it's a very yeah, but, well... But, but, but they're both having a go with it. Uh, n- none of them are particularly fondly remembering Talking Heads. So. That's true. It could have been he went to the show for her benefit. You never know. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's a good song. It, it just kind of meanders for me and, and doesn't really do much for me doesn't really mean much to me it's it's not a song that if i was still making big country mix tapes or i guess nowadays it would be a big country playlist would not find its way on there but i can recognize it for being um a a well-structured a well-written song but uh emotionally it just doesn't it doesn't uh hit any buttons for me really at all I, th- I think i think it might find its way to the tape called songs i do not like because of my big country snobbery <laughs> <laughs> yeah it might be on there definitely would be on that well let, let's see what i thought about it years ago i wrote uh didn't like this song much at all on first listen lines like keep that crew neck sweater i wore to the talking heads gig just aren't the lines i really want from my bc listening experience is that fair of me? Of course not. Is it honest? Yes. Anyway, though, the song has definitely grown on me quite a bit now that I've gotten used to it. Despite some lines that sound like they're trying a bit too hard to be cute and clever, I think most of the lyrics do work, and the song moves along at a lively, infectious pace. Well, that's a bit of a change that I've had there. 
Making a bit of humor out of a out of a relationship ending is a nice idea. I can definitely hear the Ray Davies influence on this one. So yeah, pretty much the same. A little more positive, perhaps. A little more positive back then, yeah. Yeah. yeah oh again. well. Oh well. It's it's it, it just kind of sits there. That song just kind of sits there. Wow. No. Well, for <laughs> me, for me, it definitely does more than that. It's uh, <laughs> it's my number three. Oh wow! It's my number nine. Number nine, number nine. Gosh, you're such a freaking snob. <laughs> if I want to hear great songs, uh, great traditional rock and roll songs about breakups, I'll go listen to the Kinks. I didn't I want- think this was that traditional, but there, there you go. Unbig country, like perhaps. I mean, I, I didn't go and break down all the stuff that the guys are doing, but I really hear a lot of big country in it. I think that's what changed for me over the years because it, it would definitely not be my number three uh, to begin with. But I think that's what I hear over the years. I hear more of it than I think I did back then. Mm, interesting. But that's that's me. Yeah, that is you. I, I, hear, I hear good musicianship, good playing, good production. I just don't hear a lot of big country, but... I think oh, wow. somebody on our Facebook page, by the way, said that they, they really liked this song because it also name-checked their other favorite band, which was Talking Heads. Yeah, yeah. I think that was uh, Nurin Peterson. Nurin Peterson in South Africa. Wow, what a, a serendipitous moment. Um, I got home and uh, I haven't um, chosen anything on my laptop which I've just now started uh, loading with uh, music. And the first first album I decided to listen to tonight was um, Driving to Damascus, an album that um, I only came across as a result of the Great Divide podcast. Um, I don't think it was promoted at all in any way in South Africa. And um, I ordered it. I received it in December in 2016. And... uh, it's become one of my favorite albums, and uh, it's just terribly unfortunate that uh, the general population and the music marketing powers that be didn't uh, feel the same way about it, and uh, possibly resulted in the untimely death of um, a hero of of all of ours. And uh, and it's just um, a wake up moment for us to realize that. We have a lot to give to this world, and if not immediately realized, we need to have faith that uh, what we do put out there, with if given with the right intention, is ultimately good and might not ultimately be received at that time that we can realize it. I'm as desperately sad as I believe many of us on the podcast are that Stuart Adamson isn't still with us the many moments of joy and self-reflection that he's given us. Um, It's a beautiful album. I'm holding it in my hand at the moment. Um, My favorite songs, tracks on it, um, Devil in the Eye, um, brilliant lyrics, somebody else uh, poignant. Um, I even love Talking Heads myself. Uh, My two favorite bands were Talking Heads and Big Country. It's just phenomenal that he mentions Talking Heads in one of his songs. Yeah, and thanks, Tom and Svein, for such a fantastic podcast. I don't know if you've got any much more material. 
um, but it was a wonderful discovery for me. Thank you. All right, so that's all we had time for in this episode, but we will be back to continue this deep dive, this never-ending deep dive, this never-ending series of deep dives in episode 73. So, it's fine. Any last thoughts on this episode before we uh, say adieu? Fairly well, my fairy fae. <laughs> yeah, you stole another line from me. Great. But you can say bye bye <laughs> One step ahead of you. How about you? country special guests here on the night elves tonight they've been wild all evening and stuart's got something else that really winds him up we, be- we better get it what else would you like eradicated we were banished from the planet what I'll is tell it you what really really bugs me to death is cheap stingy restaurant owners in britain who give you one cup of coffee for two pound fifty and then don't even care to offer you a refill when the cup's empty now this cup you could barely wash Let's say your eye in. You couldn't. Example. You couldn't rest an egg on it, could no, you? Those no, cups you of coffee. And of course, I spend a lot of time in America, and it's mm. not that one country's better than the other. But at least in America, Service. when you're gasping for it in the morning, they fill up your coffee, coffee cup as many times as you would like to. Now, me being a Scottish guy who likes a fag <laughs> on the occasion, <laughs> likes a fair bit of coffee in the morning. I'm right. European. I need to have my caffeine. I need to have my nicotine. Right. So please, if you're going to charge me two pound fifty for a cup of coffee, either make it a big ass cup or fill it up. Yeah, more make than it a once. pussy from under the that bed would be kind fine. of cup. Aye, a chanty. <laughs> Just perfect. You're such a freaking snob. Friggin' thief.